This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. When I first started playing basketball, bringing me back, it brings back so many good memories because that's all I thought about. I knew I had to pour my heart and soul into the game to have any chance, any chance at all, of making it to my dream, the NBA. And even when things didn't pan out due to the accident that ended my career, my overall resume still gave me an opportunity as a sports analyst to profit off the game I love. But that's not how sports actually works though. We're influential. We attract millions of viewers to our networks. A lot of us come from dire situations. When something goes wrong with your teammates, you call it out. It's called accountability. And when something goes wrong with America, we call it out even louder. Colin Kaepernick takes a knee during the national anthem. NBA players go on strike in the name of racial justice. It almost feels irresponsible if we don't take action. That's what I want to get into on today's episode. How people in the sports world are learning to speak out on issues that affect all of us. First up, Michelle Roberts former executive director of the National Basketball Players Association. That's the union for NBA players. She walks us through what NBA players are dealing with when they want to get active. So, Michelle, the NBA had a critical situation in 2019 with Philadelphia 76ers president Daryl Morey when he tweeted in support of an independent Hong Kong, and that caused a ton of controversy. And one of the criticisms I hear from people that love to attack the NBA is, oh, you can speak about issues that are here within the States, but you don't want to speak about international issues due to the fact that the NBA is in big business with China. I'm curious, how do you respond to those comments? Well, the one thing I I say is this, you know, even when it comes to so-called domestic issues, a basketball player, just like any other members of a member of the community, has the right to be completely agnostic. Right. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't, you're not compelled to say anything about Black Lives Matter just because you're black. Right. You have the right to be agnostic. I personally don't think I have the right. I'm a Christian. And I, I think that and the way I've been raised, I think I have a responsibility to my community. And so I do that. But I don't think anyone is compelled to say anything. So we sh- I think people should. I think people should lend a hand. But you're not required to. You have the right to be agnostic or to even not give a darn. The players that were in the streets and wearing you know, Black Lives Matter, they, they were passionate about something that, that, that hit home to them, that they understood, that they had to live with. You know, Sterling wasn't the only player in history that's been assaulted by police officers. Our players, especially our black male players, have to deal with this as a possibility every day of their lives. So these were issues that touched them. You know, with China, and I'm not speaking for the league, you know, the league has business relationship with, with China that I'm not privy to in many, many ways. Um, some of our players have shoe deals with some of the Chinese, with some of the Chinese sneaker companies, but most of them do not. And, and to be candid with you, and I, and I won't call his name, but one of our players said this when he was asked a this similar question, man, I don't know anything about that. Right. I, I don't know anything about those issues. Hmm. What I know is what happens in my community. And that's what I'm reacting to. And am I supposed to react to everything in every country and every part of the world? I don't think so. But the bottom line is I'm not because I'm only going to respond to things that touch my heart. But I don't I, I, I'm not going to 
tag anybody, anybody, with the responsibility of speaking out on all the world issues. You don't, you, you don't, you don't have to. Speaking of an international issue that does hit home domestically, I wanted to get your opinion very quickly on oh Brittany Griner. Uh, she's in custody right now in Russia. But there's a lot of talk about us as citizens, uh, the best way that we can support her. Now, I've heard people say, hey, the NBA, the WNBA is not making comment on that to bring more right. attention that would give the Russian government more leverage about creating the kind of mm-hmm. chaos and disturbance that they actually want. Uh, but I'm really curious, do you think we need to talk more loudly about her imprisonment or raise awareness, or does that risk her becoming a political pawn? You know, I've got to tell you, and, and that's why I'm going to defer to people who claim to know better, because I have never had to negotiate the release of an, of a, an American from an international criminal uh, justice system. I don't know. <laughs> right? I mean, Putin is talking about, I'm not afraid to use nuclear, right? So I don't know. I want the sister to be safe. Of course, we want her to be home. Um, but I am the last person in the world, and very few of us, I think, have the, the expertise to be able to intelligently opine on what the, what the response should be. So take me to your first CBA, the collective bargaining mm-hmm. agreement that you were able to do with Adam Silver. Were you, because, you know, you didn't have history in sports business prior to this. I'm curious going into that negotiation with Adam, who's considered to be one of the most progressive commissioners in all sports. What was that experience ultimately like? I started preparing for the CBA even before I got the job, right? Because I I believed, I knew that there there were negotiations coming up. And I think at that point, it was two and a half years down the road when I first heard about the job. And I had not, you know, I'd done negotiations for sure, but never a, a collective bargaining agreement. I was familiar with them because, again, I represented unions and officials, but in criminal cases. Um, and had to consult the CBA to find out how badly my client had, was allegedly in violation of it. Um, but I never negotiated one. So I just I did what I always do. I just completely immersed myself in the history of the negotiations between the union and the league, and just I mean, I, I I could I could almost understand why there were some of the hiccups in the prior negotiations that existed. Principally, um, I thought was an a failure to keep the players engaged as early as possible in the process. Um, it is tough at, in and of itself to deal with the league because um, Adam is not stupid. You know, he's a, he's a bright guy, progressive, but you know, he also understands who he's working for. Uh-huh. Adam likes to say that I'm the commissioner of the entire basketball family, and that's true, but the folks that can fire him are not basketball players. They are owners. And so he, those, that's his constituent, um, constituency. And I appreciate that. I mean, just as, just as I, I, people that fire me would, would be players, right? And so I, I, I'm thoroughly immersed myself in, in, in the history of the negotiations and what the issues were. But most importantly, I got the players engaged. So I would talk to them about CBA negotiations. You know, this is what, this is, these are the issues that we believe the league is going to want to discuss. What issues do you want to discuss? These are the issues we propose you want you have us discuss. Find out exactly what what the players would tolerate, would not tolerate. Right? Um, this notion of of a lockout that that's that's something that had been done repeatedly in the three 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 prior negotiations. Uh, are you ready for that? 
Mm -hmm. Um, What are you prepared to strike about? Because just as they can lock you out, you can strike. Um, You know, leverage is 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 can can be fleeting. Um, And the one thing that I thought we had going for us was, you'll recall this, Jade, the league had just inked that big TV deal. And money was about to pour down from the heavens. And everybody was anxious With to With ESPN get Turner, yes. Absolutely. Everybody was anxious to start receiving and spending that money. And I viewed that as leverage for the players um, because you know, rich people like getting richer. The contracts were there. But all this new money, I could, I, but I met, I, I remember seeing Ted Leonsis when they had a, at the press conference. He was rubbing his hands. He was so happy waiting for this money to come. I said, you know what? We need, we need to strike while this iron is hot because they're enjoying this new money and a lockout or a strike means nobody's making any. So I, I, I thought it was important that we try to you know, galvanize the players and then get to work sooner rather than later because you know, we had the leverage. That was Michelle Roberts, former executive director of the National Basketball Players Association. Michelle, a big thank you for coming on our show and please keep on trailblazing. After the break, Sports writer Dave Zirin on the Colin Kaepernick moment. This is The Limits from NPR. Please stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. There's maybe no moment more defining in the last decade of sports than when Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem. We have cops that are murdering people. We have cops in the SFPD that are blatantly racist. And those issues need to be addressed. Honestly, it felt like a wake-up call. And it set the stage for more athletes, like myself, to take a stand on racial injustice. Earlier this year, I talked to sports writer and editor Dave Zirin. He wrote a book about what he calls the Kaepernick Effect. I believe that Colin Kaepernick made a tremendous gift to the world of not just sports, but the world of activism, the world of protest, the world of direct action, uh, the world of civil disobedience. And what he did was he bequeathed a language that anybody could replicate. That's the gift that Colin Kaepernick bequeathed to a generation of young athletes. In nearly every corner of America, 
young athletes were inspired to take the knee in protest of police brutality and the mistreatment of black people. But as with so many things in life, context and the history behind any moment of major protest is incredibly important. So I wanted to ask Dave to set the stage of the moment we were in when Colin was making headlines for taking the knee and the impact that may have had on his predecessors. Here's what he had to say. It's so fascinating. The education level for a lot of people when it comes to racial issues are pretty surface. I mean, I have Mm -hmm. people that have been around me, Dave, for long periods of time in my life that I utilize that time to start having conversations around, do you know what the 13th Amendment is? Have you ever heard of Black Wall Street? And the lack there of education about a lot of these things was so kind of galling to me in a way, um, just because it's been something that I've been taught about, but also I had to be patient and make sure that I educated them. And I'm, I'm curious, with Colin Kaepernick himself educating himself about the history of peaceful protests, how did he reflect on those that came before him throughout that process? That's a great question, because when, when Colin Kaepernick uh, started to take his knee, one of the things that was most gratifying to me about it is someone who re- really does treasure, I think, the importance of this history and what it has to teach us is you saw some of the athletes who came before all of a sudden have a new life. Like people I'm thinking of, like Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, mm-hmm. uh, Craig Hodges, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. I mean, th- these are folks who found themselves all of a sudden on the news to give their comments about Kaepernick. All of a sudden, people cared 20 years after the fact. People cared what Mahmoud Abdul Rauf had to say, finally. 30 years after the fact, after he was summarily run out of the NBA, even though he was three time in a row, three point champion, uh, Craig Hodges, all of a sudden, you know, people wanted to read his book, do a documentary about Craig, see what he had to say. And that's very gratifying. And that to me is one of the great things about struggle and what it can produce is it begins to unearth stories that people otherwise didn't know. I mean, you can't convince me for a second that there's no connection between, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement and Colin Kaepernick taking a knee or the Black Lives Matter movement and people now knowing what you mean by Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Man, it's so deep when you start getting into the belly of it. And can I say one thing, Jay, real quick? Just because this this moves me so much to to say is, you know, I, I got into this work and I entirely almost because of Mahmoud Abdul Raouf and that taking place when I was a young college student and following that story. I mean, it just, it sent an electrical current through me. And after I became a sports writer, I spent years trying to get an interview with Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. And I got in direct contact with him. We had several long conversations and he never wanted to do a public interview because he just felt so burned by the experience. I mean, this was someone who was who had scars, basically, and not all the scabs were scarred over. So he just did not want to talk about his experience. After Cap takes his knee and other folks start taking a knee and speaking about it and speaking about him, all of a sudden he was ready to do an interview. And I was ready to speak to him, and he was ready to speak to me. And I was so moved by that because it just showed the way that struggle can fortify people um, who had otherwise been abused by the system. I mean, I, I've known Mike for a while. What he did, it was so courageous. 
I mean, standing up for your rights, it's um, sometimes I get really frustrated, Dave. It's literally one of the most arduous processes I've ever seen people go through when they step up and they say things or they do things like that. Yeah, that, that that's absolutely true. Uh, it's someone our our fellow friend, a uh, former NBA player, Atan Thomas, calls the great burden and blessing mm. of being a political athlete, uh, particularly being a black athlete, because that's where you get to the blessing part. The burden is, of course, feeling like you have some sort of responsibility to say something, even if you don't feel necessarily ready to do so. But, you know, the movement not just the press, but the movement is demanding that you say something and maybe you don't feel ready and that's a real burden. But it's also this blessing because then you're connected in a way that runs almost deeper than blood to people like Muhammad Ali, to people like Althea Gibson, to people like, oh my goodness, like I mentioned, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, to the Wyoming 14 who I was just writing about uh, 14 Wyoming football players who were kicked off the team uh, for protesting the racial policies at Brigham Young University. And I, I was recently writing about the Wyoming 14 precisely because of the incident that involved Duke over the weekend mm -hmm. and a volleyball player who was uh, had racial slurs raining down on her head from from people at BYU and about how there is this tradition at BYU of free people protesting the racism of the institution. That's the history you get to connect to. And that's the burden and the blessing. And it's certainly not for everybody. And I'm not even convinced to this day it was for Colin, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Isn't context so important, Dave? Because the more you listen to you know, media pundits talk about the situation, and a lot of times people don't realize that when you're on air you have a certain amount of time that you have to get a mm. comment in. So sometimes that might be 30 seconds, sometimes that might be a minute, and because you're sharing, obviously, your platform with other people. And sometimes when you try to squeeze in a certain commentary, you don't give the whole depiction of the story. You give a little interesting angle that then leads to a lot. And I kind of feel like that's what happened with Cap, the way a lot of, of the story was being framed or tidbits or context or being left out in general. Mm. Well, I mean, that's the, the nature of sports media is you either give it something to feed upon or it will feed upon you. Hmm. So either you control your own narrative, which the media responds to and discuss and in, in those terms, and I certainly include myself in that, or you start looking for things to talk about. And once the media starts looking, instead of just receiving that's when you get into a situation where the athlete themselves feels imperiled uh, and that their narrative is going to be left by the wayside. And in this, that's the way it's always been. But in this era of social media, it's much more of a contested space because athletes can put out their perspectives. And, you know, and that relates to something that I think is, is very controversial in this regard. But, but Colin Kaepernick's uh, insistence on really giving the media next to nothing to feed on for the previous five years. I mean, mm. think about everything that's happened in this country over the last five years, particularly related to racism and policing. And think about what Colin Kaepernick's contribution to that has been. I mean, and I'm not saying it's been a positive or negative, but he, I'm saying that it's worth looking at that he has made the decision to not be on Twitter responding to every incident of police brutality, not even really responding to 
uh, the killing of George Floyd, but beyond one tweet about the demonstrations, that was really it. You know, while other athletes were going out into the streets and actually leading rallies, uh, he chose to take a step back from that. Do you think that's a uh, missed opportunity, Dave, by him? I think it's debatable. I think there's something about his willingness to let his statement in 2016, which he did, let's remember, for, for 17 straight weeks. There's something about him willing to let that stand for its own thing that empowered young athletes to take a knee as well, because then you didn't have to take, because you didn't have to take a knee for every last stray thought that Colin Kaepernick was putting out on Twitter. I mean, imagine for a second if Kevin Durant did something very political and very inspiring, and you're a high school student, and you're like, I'm going to do the same thing. But then people every day are asking you, hey, what do you think about that Kevin Durant just told Carrot Top to go bleep himself? Hmm. You know, and then you have to answer. Yeah, answer a lot of questions for your past. Yes, and for every last thing your supposed hero and model is doing. So there's something to me that's almost like profoundly adult about Kaepernick saying, I did what I did. Now I'm handing the baton to you to do what you need to do. I mean, do I wish Colin Kaepernick had been out at protests? How could I not wish that? Uh, do Do I wish that he would grant more interviews to people who, so he'd be able to express like his thought process and what he's thinking. I think that would be a, a, an amazing thing. Uh, do I think that his decision to be silent, to be largely silent, not entirely, but to be silent uh, has its own benefits? I, I actually do. So whether you like it or not, athletes can and are using their voices on the court and the field. But where do sports analysts fit into all this? As journalists, are we entitled to speak our mind about things like race? I talked to Stephen A. Smith, maybe the most recognizable voice in modern sports. He's the fire of ESPN's first take. And if you're the subject of one of his rants, best believe you should stay off the grid at least a week. Kwame Brown is gone. The City of Angels, Hollywood, just should be celebrated. Throw a parade already, whether you win a championship or not. This man was a bona fide scrub. He can't play. Here's one thing you need to know about Stephen A. He will never stay quiet about causes that matter to him. And he's learned the hard way, like most of us have in the media, the responsibility he has with his platform. Sometimes that means stepping back and letting others speak. I don't have a problem letting you know where the hell I stand and how I feel as it pertains to the world of politics because politics dramatically infiltrates our lives. Why are we going to pretend otherwise? Because the ripple effect of the collaborative tsunami that is coming down upon our society because of all of those things ultimately affects the world of sports. Who's paying to watch you? How much money are you getting? The money that you're getting, you're not subjected to what the typical American out there is being subjected to. Do you care? Does it matter to you? Where's your heart lie? You know what I'm saying? Um, When you see somebody getting shot or stabbed in the subway, there's a reason Kevin Durant spoke up and spoke out against that violent act when it happened during last season. Because you're right down the block at the Barclays Center. You come into practice, traffic is blocked off, police tape is all around the place because these kind of senseless violent acts are taking place. How do you ignore that? Because even though you've made it, you come from a community that identifies with that kind of life. 
and for you not to speak about it and for you to be oblivious to it and to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to it is the complete definition of selling out. That's when you're selling out. Mm. When you don't care, when it doesn't matter to you, when you're not willing to speak on it, when you don't have the courage to bring attention to it so people less fortunate than yourself can be saved from the reprehensible and insidious acts that are taking place in our society. That's what it's all about. That's why it intertwines. When George Floyd got murdered, you saw people, you know, gung-ho about it because I said it was a metaphor for what black people have been dealing with forever. We constantly feel like we've got that figurative, proverbial knee on our neck. That's what we do. So to see this man, this cop with his knee on his neck, not moving for nine minutes plus, not hearing him say, I can't breathe, and not having any compassion, any empathy, any sympathy, nothing. That's what black folks are accustomed to feeling and experiencing. And so to be in my position, I'll be damned if I'm going to be silent about it. But more importantly, I'm mindful of whose voices need to be heard. It ain't always mine. I want you to explain a little bit more about American Dream. We're, bo- we're both girl dads, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I have another little girl on the way. Well, congratulations. Thank that. you, man. Good luck Thank with you. that, too. I got two teenagers. Jesus, they don't prepare you for that, bro. Any advice you want to give me on that real quick? Pray a lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Because they know what they know. Um, you're old, you're outdated because you're their dad. So you don't know what they know. They're there to school you, okay? Because they have the answers, all right? And the only thing they need you is to supply them what they want and need so they could do what they want to do. <laughs> That's it. You understand what I'm saying? And if you do it, they love you enough to tell you they love you and give you a hug and go on their merry way. And if you don't do it, they can't stand you. Mm. So just All accept right. it, All right. and yeah. that's the way it is with I'll teenagers. I'll pray. It does lead me to, and I think it's a, it's a challenge for us both to tackle. Yeah. Sports journalism is so male-dominated. Mm-hmm. The lack thereof women in positions of power in sports journalism is a struggle. Where do you see that industry going, and, and what are some of the things that you would recommend that we do to make those changes for women to be heard on larger platforms in sports? I don't buy into that the way other people have. I mean? think that the, the women's presence in our industry has grown exponentially, and it's continuing to grow, and it's well-deserved. Um, let's face reality. Women are smarter than us. They're just better. They just are, okay? And I think as a society, we've come to realize and accept that. It's not to say that they don't have their challenges, but the challenges are not what they once were. So when I hear a lot of women addressing their issues, I'm not minimizing it by any stretch. I'm not denying its significance. I totally get that. And they're right and they deserve our support. But I want women to understand the true power you have to influence an entire society to support things you want supported as much as you do. You dictate that support. I am a black man on television. I'm covering sports. 
I own my own production company. I got stuff coming down the pike. And I absolutely positively know I cannot do it without the support of women. Period. I can be a little successful. I can make some money. I can be well known. But I really will have made it. But you when know, they support me. But I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. But you know, I got a chance to talk to Tracy Oliver the other day. Who did Girls Trip. First black woman to gross over $100 million in a movie. Incredible. Met Issa Rae at Stanford. Issa they did Rae. Adventures of an Awkward Black Girl. Um, did some incredible things. And they were telling me about a story, Stephen A., where they were, a lot of the executives they met were Caucasian male. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the problems they had was bricking in. Yeah. Because people didn't want to give them opportunities. Right. People say, well, you know, you don't have a face for TV right. or we don't really see that fitting our demographic. Right. How do they navigate that? It is a minefield that you have to work through. There's no question about that. Nobody's trying to act like the playing field is even. Nobody's trying to act like there isn't an uphill climb for women and what have you and that there is not still progress to be made. I would never say something that ignorant. What I'm stating is, is that they have ascended significantly. And they are incredibly powerful, so much so that society knows you can't win without them. That is a beautiful position to be in. That was none other than Stephen A. Smith on how he uses his platform in sports for activism. I'd like to give a big shout out to Stephen A., Dave Zirin, and Michelle Roberts for coming on my show, but more importantly, for their impact in the sports world. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, remember, stay positive and let's keep it moving. The Limits is produced by Devin Schwartz, Mano Sundaresen, Max Friedman, and Lena Sunskeri. Video production by Kaz Fantoni, Langston Sessoms, Christina Shaman, Iman Young, and Nick Michael. Our executive producers are Karen Kinney, Verilyn Williams, and Yolanda Sanguene. Our senior VP of programming and audience development is Anya Grumman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Christina Hardy, Rudy Correa, and Charlotte Rigby. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Capella's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. See how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.